Have you ever presented the gospel to somebody and been rejected? Let's back it up a little bit. Have you maybe even not even got that far? Have you just invited them to a Bible study or asked them to look at God's word with you and you get rejected? If you're like me, when that happens, a thought probably enters your mind and the thought is, I must be doing something wrong. And I don't want to pretend as though that's not maybe a little bit true. I think there's always maybe a way in which we could be more clear, more organized, more bold. But that's not actually what we're going to talk about today. What we're going to talk about today is what happens when we change our view of rejection. When the door is slammed in your face and you think, failure. And the way we can do that is to look at God. Because throughout history, God has been changing the world, not in spite of rejection, but through it. As we've walked through the book of Isaiah, we've seen that. We've seen God's people continuously reject him. And it's caused them to lose everything. And they still reject God. And though Israel has rejected God, God keeps telling them something in Isaiah. He says, I will not reject you. Their rejection won't stop God and his plan from going through. In fact, he's going to send somebody to fix the mess that they've gotten themselves into. He's going to send a servant. And today, after 48 chapters, we get to meet the servant. He's going to reach the nations. And he's going to bring joy to God's people. And he's going to do it through rejection. And the hope is that because of that rejection we will do the same thing. Reach the world through rejection. Let's look at God's word. We're on page 393 of your church Bibles. Isaiah chapter 49. And we're going to be introduced to God's servant. Point one on your outline. God's servant must reach the nations by being rejected. We're going to read the first seven verses of chapter 49, and I'm going to start with the first six. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and in his quiver, he hid me away. 
And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring, bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation will reach to the end of the earth. We'll pause there. This is a servant. We're switching between the servant speaking about himself and Isaiah speaking about the servant. I'm going to just draw a few observations from the text. First, there's a lot of really strange imagery about this servant. The idea in verse 1 of this, this conquering servant, this champion... In verse 1, he will be called by God from his mother's womb. Which is a surprisingly gentle way to start. And verse 2 is gentle too, but you have to understand the imagery. The verse says, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. And that does not seem gentle. That seems kind of inhuman. But what Isaiah is saying is that the way this servant will conquer is by the truth he will speak. So he brings a very different kind of sword than Israel has been accustomed to. Second, in verse 3, this servant is named Israel, to which the church kids And the audience think, no, it's Jesus. Or perhaps, no, it's Emmanuel, right? To that I clarify, think job and not merely title. What Isaiah is saying here is that this servant will be the Israel that Israel couldn't be. So unsurprisingly, as we read so far, he's not going to fit in in his methods because he doesn't look like the people he's sent to. Third, this servant is going to help Israel, but that's not the end of his mission. This servant can do more. Look at the text. Look at verse 6. This servant I will make you as a light for the nations. That my salvation will reach to the end of the earth. Because saving Israel is too light of a thing. And in this point, we're going to spend a little time because it's a very big deal. 
For now, just write down Acts chapter 13. There's a lot you could draw out of it because that chapter quotes this verse and provides clarity. Here's a portion of Acts chapter 13. It won't be on your screen. But if you're very fast, you're there already. And Paul and Barnabas, two apostles that would later come, spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. This is a Jewish audience. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. The point is that this mission is global. And Israel, you have a shot. You can jump on the bus. But this bus is moving forward whether you're on it or not. And it's going to the nations. So it's kind of a compliment, but it's kind of backhanded. It's wrapped up. This global mission and their failure to accept it. Because this servant must reach the nations. And rejection, as you even see in Acts 13, plays a critical part. How critical? Let me now read verse 7 of Isaiah 49. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to be deeply despised, abhorred by the nation the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So what happens is this servant will be rejected and immediately connected to that is victory, which is very strange. Kings and princes falling down. So God's servant must reach the nations, but he must do it by being rejected. And don't worry if that sounds strange. We're going to be talking a lot about this in the weeks to come. For now, what does this passage teach us about what God's servant will reach the nations with? It won't be with the sword of revenge. Remember, he brings a different sword. It won't be with an iron fist. (coughs) And it won't even be with cultural assimilation. He's going to bring joy. And that's point two. God's servant must bring joy to God's people. Let's take a look at verses 8 through 13. (coughs) Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to a portion 
the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out, and to those in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, when all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Now, I could probably preach a whole sermon on these verses, but since I can't take that long, I'm just going to tell you one or two small things because otherwise I'll get very carried away. First, I want to set up what's being accomplished here. Look at verse 8. As you read that, it sounds like what's coming is a day or a time of favor or helping, and then we see a long list of very good things happening. A lot of justice. Freedom for prisoners. People coming out of darkness into light. Hungry people fed. So if you're an Israelite, here's how you're going to interpret what I just said. On a particular day, or in a particular season, God will free us. We're going to be a nation again, and especially... If you look at verse 12, people from all over the world are going to come to us and they're all going to be Jewish. We win. That's how you read it. If you're an Israelite in Babylon. And I can't tell you how easy it is to read this text and believe that. How many nations throughout history, including America, read it that way? Their version of God's servant exists for their own pleasure and prosperity. That's what God's servant is going to bring us. Thankfully, again, Scripture interprets Scripture. Because I almost missed this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 quotes this verse to explain it. And again, it's Paul. And this time, he's writing to a church. Again, this won't be on screen, but if you're fast, you're there already. 2 Corinthians 6. He says this, Working together with him, that's referring to God's servant, Jesus, then we appeal to you, church, not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, 
Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Did you catch the big gift that the servant is bringing? The big gift, the day of salvation, is grace from God. And it's not a day, according to Paul. It's more like a new reality. And it happens hundreds of years after Isaiah would write it down. And this gift, here's the key part, is a gift for all people. People from all over the world will someday be God's people. Verse 12, these people shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and the west and these from the land of Syene. It's a new world for the world. That's what the servant is going to bring to the nations. So who's your neighbor now, if that's true? Well, the text gives you a really fun example. Syene, verse 12. Have you ever heard of it? Syene was a land described in the book of Ezekiel as the next Sodom and Gomorrah. But instead, God's servant is going to bring God's grace to people like that. And verse 13, hot on the heels of this, says, Sing for joy. And that begs a question. Why then, between Isaiah's time through the time of God's servant, why does Israel not sing? Why do they have no joy? It's the same reason that many people who go to church, many families, and even churches themselves stay in a constant, joyless bubble of fellowship and programs, and they rot from the inside right now. It's the same reason. It's the third point on your outline. The ones rejecting God's servant are God's people. Israel has no song of joy. What's their song? It's verse 14. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. What has Israel been doing? They've swallowed idol after idol. They've glutted themselves. And they've brought in people from, they haven't gone out. They've brought in all these cultures and false gods. And they've swallowed those too. And they've accepted the world. 
And now they're stuck in Babylon and they're blaming God for it. And the Lord is so kind in his response to them. He's so kind, he gives them four answers to their one little objection. He gives them three small answers and he gives them one really big answer. Answer number one is found in verses 15 through 21, which I'll read now. And I'm going to move quickly through this, so stay with me. Verses 15 through 21. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these might forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you in the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, this place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? I'll speak very briefly to this first answer. God is answering his people by saying, I can't forget you. You're my child. A mom would have a better chance of forgetting her baby then I would have a chance of forgetting you. That's a word for the moms out there. That God loves his lost people more than you love your child. And the rest of these verses, God's saying, it seems bleak now. You're mourning. You feel barren but you won't just survive. You're actually going to thrive. Look at verse 19. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. We don't have enough room for our people. This is like Israel at the time of Joseph. So big. We're packing out Egypt. It's not over for Israel, God is saying here. It's just beginning. And this is good news. God cares for their needs. But friends, wait for the fourth answer because this one is small. For now, the second answer. Verses 22 and 23. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. 
Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. So the second answer, I won't bother with all the imagery, there's just too much to say there, is simply that Israel will not be put to shame forever. God will take away their shame. They won't always be huddled in the corner of an oppressive empire. And this is good news for us too. But friends, wait for the fourth answer because this one is small. For now, the third answer. Verses 24 through 26. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children and I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. And they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. And all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So the third answer, violent as it seems, is that the enemies of Israel will be defeated. And as grim as verse 26 sounds with the flesh eating and all that, the language is that of oppressors being besieged. Like when an enemy army is, is trapped in their own city and the other army's outside and you can't leave and they close off your water supply. Until they implode. God is saying to places like Babylon, that's going to be their end. Babylon? This is good news for God's people. But friends, wait for the fourth answer because this one is small. Here, finally, is the fourth answer. Verses 50, or chapter 50, verses 1 through 3. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why when I came was there no man why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness 
and make sackcloth her covering. What kind of answer is that? The big answer to Israel's objection is that God is holding up a mirror. Their unfaithfulness, their sin, their certificate of divorce in comparison to his mighty arm, his holiness. In other words, their objection was the Lord has forsaken me My Lord has forgotten me. And God's big answer is this. I didn't abandon you. You abandoned me. That's their real need. That's the answer they need. Not to be politically free. They need to be free from themselves and their idolatrous hearts. That's what they need. They need that so much more than economy and freedom. I mean, think about it. They've been rich and free before. Where did it get them? They were just as far from God as they are now. Why would they change this time? What kind of God would he be if he said, here, I'll give you more money. They need to love God, but all they can do is reject him. The mission of God's servant doesn't seem so strange now, does it? That's the plan. God knows how their hearts worked. God's people have rejected them all along. Fine, I'll send my servant. God's people reject the servant. Fine. God will use his people's rejection of his servant as the means to save the world. That is your main point. If it hasn't been clear all throughout, I'll say it again. God will use... His people's rejection of his servant as the means to save the world. He will use their own black hearts against them to win the victory. That's how it works. And I don't even have time to go into it. But if you read those three answers what God does to his enemies to free his people, all those things, all those curses, all that blackness, all that death, that falls on God's servant so Israel can be free. Just go read it this afternoon. And the hope in that, the hope in this mission of God's servant is that we can be God's servants. And so to all nations, through rejection, we can go. 
So how does all this apply? It's just a slight variation of your three-point outline since we're God's servants. Number one, application. Reach the nations by being rejected. Just as many people at the time of Paul's writing assumed that Jesus' goal was political revolution or prosperity, when they realized the gift of grace that he brought, they would reject Paul, just like they rejected Jesus. Fine, I'll go to the Gentiles. I'll go somewhere else. Jesus said this would happen. And what happened when Paul and countless other Christians were even killed? The gospel went outward to the nations. Through rejection, inspiring missionary after missionary to go to the ends of the earth. And some of you will do that. That's why you can share the gospel plainly and clearly, like I said when I was over here. And they can slam the door in your face and you can just go to the next one. It's okay. Because this gift of grace you have, won by God's servant, made you accepted by God. So you are free to be rejected by the world. That's how rejection actually works. And when you get this, when you actually get this, because everybody believes it now until you're knocking on the door, right? Then it starts to get a little fuzzy. When you really get this, the next two applications just flow. And the good news as we head to the next two applications is that not everybody is going to reject you. Application number two, bring joy to God's people. You can just circle the outline, it's the same one. And by God's people, I mean what the author meant. Consider the corners of the world, all nations. Maybe this isn't hard for you. Got some faithful people on the missions team, they just think like that. I got people out here that I know that they they just love reaching all nations. But maybe you're like me and you have a type. A type of person you reach or a type of method you use to reach that person. Let me put myself on the table. It is naturally easier for me to reach out to white, lower to middle class people by having them to my house. That's how I like to do it. It's who I am, and it's how I like to reach people. And that makes me precisely as effective as Israel. Come to me. I'm not going to you. Come to me. If I'm going to bring joy to the nations, I have to actually go to them. I have to learn their culture. And even in America, the melting pot, maybe that means I go to a different neighborhood. I just go to a different block. And I go to them. 
And I have to learn their culture. And I have to find out how can I best plant seeds of the gospel in the hearts of these people. There's uh, one Christian I know, the way he put it, he's, um, he's African-American, and he said, you know, so many Christians want to move into my neighborhood and they want to open coffee houses. If you really want to reach my neighborhood, open an AIDS testing clinic. That's how you do it. Bring that gospel along with you and you'll reach a lot more people. I could give you so many examples, but the point is that it's not about my comfort because I am a servant by God to the nations. And that's whether I go, not, not all of us will go, or whether I just give sacrificially to those who go, like the missionaries we support. Third application. This might be the hardest one for me. Know that many of the ones rejecting God's servant are God's people. There are so many right now in church who are honoring Jesus with their words and with their singing, but deep down, it's not about reaching the nations. It's about them and their comfort. And they're thinking right now, oh, where am I going to go for lunch? What am I going to do later on? They don't have to wait for the prayer at the end. They're already finished. And these people will be your toughest opponents. Not the stereotypical atheist on your Facebook feed. These people will be the hardest because it won't be obvious. Some of them will be so nice and comfortable. So how can you tell if people are rejecting Jesus' mission? How can you identify these people? The same way you can tell if you're rejecting the mission. Just look at the first two applications. Is that their trajectory? And I do want to use the word trajectory because, friends, this is a high calling. This is hard teaching. And so I want to be as gentle as God is to Israel, giving them three kind answers before I give them the hard truth. I want to be so gentle here. Because rejection is hard. It's not always a door slammed in your face. That might be easy. Someday it might be a matter of life and death for some of you. And Jesus himself asked, is there any other way but the cross? But he obeyed rather than seeking the earthly comfort of disobedience. He chose to be rejected even by God on the cross so that God's enemies, we, could be accepted. So, if if his spirit is in you, if you are a Christian, if you know this servant, please just remember 
God's faithfulness. I might actually ask you to memorize the first part of chapter 49, verse 16. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. What a fitting choice of words for God's rejected servant. He won't forget. It's engraved. And if you're not a believer, or if you have stumbled over the true mission of Jesus for your entire life, and you're just starting to realize it, remember, this servant is the world's salvation. This is the only way. And if it sounds hard to remember, it's okay. We'll be talking about it a lot for the next few months. The only possible means for our acceptance as God's people is God's rejected servant. Let's pray. God, it is so hard for me to face rejection. For me to be clear and bold with the gospel and be turned down and to go do it again. But Lord, that was your life. When you came here, that was your entire mission. And it was a mission which made it possible for Gentiles like us to be part of your family. Thank you, Lord. Would you have mercy on us and be patient with us as we trust you. Amen.